our uh, passage for today, uh, stretching through verse 56. And uh, before we begin, let me read this uh, to you. Uh, encourage you to follow along in your your Bible, uh, one under the seat in front of you, if you came without one today. Encourage you to follow along. Hear the word of the Lord. Immediately, he made his disciples get into the boat and go before him to the other side, to Bethsaida, while he dismissed the crowd. And after he had taken leave of them, he went up on the mountain to pray. And when evening came, the boat was out on the sea, and he was alone on the land. And he saw that they were making headway painfully, for the wind was against them. And about the fourth watch of the night, he came to them, walking on the sea. He meant to pass by them. But when they saw him walking on the sea, they thought it was a ghost. And they cried out, for they all saw him and were terrified. But immediately he spoke to them and said, Take heart, it is I, do not be afraid. And he got into the boat with them, and the wind ceased. And they were utterly astounded, for they did not understand about the loaves, but their hearts were hardened. When they had crossed over, they came to land at Gennesaret and moored to the shore. And when they got out of the boat, the people immediately recognized him and ran about the whole region and began to bring the sick people on their beds to wherever they heard he was. And wherever he came, in villages, cities, or countryside, they laid the sick in the marketplaces and implored him that they might touch even the fringe of his garment. And as many as touched it were made well. This is the inerrant, authoritative uh, word of God. May he bless what we've read. Uh, let's ask for his help as we look into this this morning. Thanks, Father, for your word. Your precious word, I pray that you bring it to life in front of our eyes today. Um, may it not only be lively, but living and active and sharper than any double-edged sword. Uh, may it uh, penetrate us and pierce our hearts, Lord. May it uh, draw us close to Jesus, your Son, and conform us to the image of Christ. May it grow us in the grace and knowledge of him. And Savior, if, if anyone here today... Uh, does not know your son. I pray that in your mercy you would draw them to put their faith in the atoning death of your son on the cross. Jesus, strengthen me today, my voice, uh, my mind, and, and heart, and guide us into your truth. We ask, Savior, in your name. Amen. Sometimes when our plans don't work out, as we hoped, uh, it's because God is detouring us. In his overruling providence, he leads us somewhere else. This is what happened to a man named Thomas Koch. He was a sophisticated, Oxford-educated Welshman. He left his ministry in 1777 to become John Wesley's chief assistant in the new and growing Methodist movement. But some years later, Coke packed his books and bags, sailed out of England, down the English Channel, and into the Atlantic, leaving for Nova Scotia. 
I'll turn it on first. There we go. And uh, you might be aware of where Nova Scotia is. Let me point it out to you. Here, of course, he's leaving up here in uh, England. Nova Scotia is this piece of land right here. Quite a, quite a journey you'll, you'll recognize. Uh, the voyage was a disaster. Uh, and it grew more and more dangerous by the day as his ship was caught in mountainous waves and mast-splitting winds. The ship's captain determined that Coke and his fellow travelers, missionaries, uh, were like Jonah. They were bringing misfortune to his ship. He considered throwing them overboard. He did, in fact, gather up some of Coke's papers and tossed them into the raging ocean. The month-long voyage of Coke took three months. And instead of landing in Nova Scotia, the damaged ship ended up in the, in the Caribbean uh, on the island of Antigua, uh, where um, Coke and his companions put ashore uh, from their wreck of a ship. Coke uh, knew that there was at least one Methodist minister living somewhere on Antigua, a missionary named John Baxter. And so Coke and his missionary friends uh, set off in Antigua to find him, walked down the uh, street of the first town, um, and stopped the first person they found to ask, where can we find John Baxter? Uh, the man they stopped was, in fact, John Baxter. <laughs> he was on his way that morning to a Christmas morning service he had planned for the island, and the sudden appearance of Coke and his missionaries out of the darkness, the early morning darkness, uh, appearing out of nowhere seemed too good to be true. And so on that Christmas day, it, it took three services for them to accommodate the crowds that gathered. And after it was over, Coke and his three missionary friends uh, abandoned any idea of traveling to Nova Scotia. Uh, they remained there on Antigua and the other nearby, isle, nearby islands. By the time Coke died in 1814, there were over 17,000 believers and followers of Jesus on those small islands. Jesus' disciples in our passage today are also blown off course in a way not unlike Thomas Koch, but on a much smaller scale. Instead of the vast Atlantic Ocean, they're, they're blown off course in the small, much comparatively smaller Sea of Galilee uh, in Israel. There are three stages to this account that I want to take you through this morning. And in the first stage of the account before us, we see the predicament of the twelve. Uh, the, the Jesus' disciples, his men encountered great difficulty on the Sea of Galilee. Many of them experienced semen. Uh, still encounter great difficulty. Let me point out three things to you about their uh, predicament today. First, I want you to see their destination, and this is in verse 45. Look at there again, please. Immediately he made his disciples get into the boat 
and go before him to the other side to Bethsaida while he dismissed the crowd. Uh, I want to point out a couple connections uh, to the feeding of the 5,000. Uh, the word that begins verse 45 immediately connects this directly with what has just happened, even though it's been uh, three or four weeks since we've seen the previous uh, account, uh, how Jesus is the shepherd of Israel fed 5,000, and we said with women it was more likely between fifteen or 20,000, uh, a significant miracle, a miracle on a grand scale, and that has just happened. In fact, it's still winding up. They're, the deacons are still putting chairs and tables away from this so to speak. Look at the last phrase of verse 45, while he dismissed the crowd. Uh, so it's just happened moments ago, and that's important to keep in mind as we work our way through this account today. Um, but there's something odd about verse 45 that I, I want you to notice too. At the start again, it says, immediately he made his disciples get into the boat and go before him to the other side. Jesus compelled his disciples. You might even say he forced them uh, to get into the boat. What a, what a strange thing for Mark to record that Jesus seems to hustle his men off to get away from that crowd. He himself goes up the mountain to get away from the crowd to, to pray. But why would Jesus force his men to leave the scene of this uh, incredible miracle. John's account of this event tells us exactly why he hustled them off. In John's account, in John 6, uh, after he fed the 5,000, John recorded this. When the people saw the sign that he had done, they said, this is indeed the prophet who is to come into the world perceiving then that they were about to come and take him by force to make him king, Jesus withdrew again to the mountain by himself. After feeding the large crowd, some of them recognized that miracle for, for what it was and, and, and recognized Jesus as the shepherd of Israel and wanted to install them as their king right then and there. And some suggest that, that maybe the 12 got caught up in this and were getting really excited about Jesus becoming king right then. And we see Christ step in and immediately almost, well, not shove them into the boat, but uh, get in the boat and get out of here uh, to uh, Bethsaida, which in terms of where we've been so far in Marcus is... Kind of far away, we assume the feeding of the 5,000 has taken place somewhere on this northwestern shore. This is where a lot of the action in Mark has been. But here we see them going across the mouth of the Jordan River to Bethsaida over here. Previously, he took a trip with his men to Gergesa. That was uh, several weeks ago. Um, this is their destination. The 12 were headed to Bethsaida. Next thing we see here in uh, the predicament of the 12 is their position, uh, their location on the Sea of Galilee. Uh, look at verse 46 with me. It tells us where they were. And after he'd taken leave of them, he went up on the mountain to pray. 
And when evening came, now let me pause here and, and point out that this probably refers to darkness. When the sun had set and darkness came. In the feeding of the 5,000, it's already late in the afternoon, verse 35. And when it grew late, his disciples came to him and said, this is a desolate place and the hour is now late. They, they wanted to send them home, if you recall. Uh, Lord, it's, it's almost sunset. Send them home to get something to eat. And Jesus says, no, you give them something to eat. And, and so this reference must be further on into the night, probably uh, at sunset. And so we notice that the disciples, the 12, are on the Sea of Galilee in the dark. Still not a great threat as they're experienced fishermen. Um, but notice the rest of, of verse 47. And when evening came, the boat was out on the sea, and he was alone on the land. Um, out on the sea is what I want you to notice. If you're holding a different, ver uh, different version, uh, you can see that it says something different there. And those words could be more literally translated uh, in the middle of the sea. And John tells us in his account that they had rowed about three or four miles into the Sea of Galilee. And that would roughly place uh, the 12 uh, right, about, right about here, right above the O of Sea of Galilee. Uh, remember, they were headed for here, and that tells you just... How strong, I mean, we don't know that they went this direction. It could have been over here, but whatever uh, direction it was, they were a long way from their destination. That's not the worst of it. Uh, because the third thing we see in their predicament is the progress that they're making, or perhaps we, wish, we should say lack of progress. Uh, according to verse 48, uh, notice what it says, and he saw that they were making headway painfully for the wind was against them. Uh, this wasn't a thunderstorm like the last time they were out on the lake. A furious storm comes, you might recall, and water's breaking over the sides of the boat. This is a windstorm, and apparently a really strong windstorm. Because they're not getting anywhere. It says in verse 48, they were making their headway painfully. Uh, that's a term that is used sometimes to refer to the pain of torture. Uh, it can all also mean great uh, and severe physical distress. It was hard rowing. We don't know how long they've been rowing uh, three or four miles into the Sea of Galilee in, in, in the pitch dark. Um, but that doesn't tell us how long it took to get that far. So perhaps their arms and shoulders had, had been aching from the strain of rowing, especially those guys like Matthew, who's a tax collector and not used to this. Um, if they weren't soaked from the water, they were dripping wet, most likely from perspiration uh, of this uh, great output, the strain of rowing. But whatever their physical state, they were not making progress because the wind was blowing against them. 
So third, we see their progress, and again, maybe we should say their lack of progress. So let me pause here and ask you um, and ask us if it would be fair to apply these verses to ourselves. If it would be safe to apply this passage to you and me as followers of Jesus, as his 12 disciples were. I believe we can apply these verses to us. Uh, have there not been times in our lives uh, when they ground to a halt because the wind was against us? Have there been times when making headway was painful and torturous? Think about their predicament again with me. Uh, they weren't stuck on the sea because they had sinned in some way. They were stuck on the sea because they had been obedient to Jesus. Remember, he sent them, forced them. Get in the boat and go. And so it's not for their own disobedience that they're out there in the dark with the wind uh, blowing in their faces. Sometimes we find ourselves in similar circumstances. We find ourselves in the dark even when we've been obedient to Christ. Uh, the wind is against us even though we're following him. In our men's Bible study a few weeks ago, we came across this verse that offers an explanation for those times. Uh, Peter writes, Beloved, do not be surprised at the fiery trial when it comes upon you to test you as though something strange were happening to you. Throughout the New Testament, I'm, I'm, I'm fortunate to say, uh, uh, if, you're not, if you didn't already know this, that is, is that suffering is not a strange thing. And according to the Word of God, it is uh, part of the normal Christian life which uh, many would uh, say is not true. Those in the prosperity gospel would disagree with. Uh, but consider Acts also. This is uh, describing the ministry of Paul and Barnabas. And this is what they tell the believers. I think it's in the city of Antioch. It says they were strengthening the souls of the disciples, encouraging them to continue in the faith and saying that through many tribulations, we must enter the kingdom of God. So is the wind blowing this morning in your life? Are you stuck on your sea of trouble in the inky blackness of dark? Are you making headway painfully? Is it hard work? Why does God allow this to happen? Uh, why does he allow us to be blown off course here like the 12 were in this account? Why does Jesus send us out on a stormy sea? Why does he allow the wind to be against us? And after all, he would have sent that wind, right? He not only put them in the boat, he would have sent the wind. Why does he allow that to, to make our progress difficult? I believe he sends us out on the stormy sea so that we can see something. And I believe that something is the glory of Christ. 
Jesus appears to the twelve on the water in glorious majesty. Let me point out three aspects of his glory in these verses. The first aspect of his glory is that he saw them. Notice the way verse 48 begins again. And he saw that they were making headway painfully. Remember that Christ has ascended the mountain, not only to escape the crowd, but to pray, as verse 46 tells us. And while Jesus was on the mountain, he saw the twelve struggling in the dark on the sea. One commentary suggests that this is Jesus in his humanity. Uh, He's just up so high that he can look out and see them with his natural vision. I think that would be an amazing thing, especially since it's around 3 o'clock in the morning. I, I think it was pitch dark by this time, And I believe this seeing refers to supernatural seeing. And what I mean is he sees the 12 because Christ sees and knows all things, especially the things related to those he loves. Can I say that again? And really important for you to hear it. Christ, he sees the 12 because Christ sees and knows all things, especially the things related to those He loves. Christ saw the twelve. Christ saw the wind against them. After all, again, he's the one who sent it. Christ saw that they were making headway painfully. He saw them the way, the same way God saw the painful slavery that Israel was in in Egypt. I want you to hear how their slavery was described for just a moment and and, uh, listen for the similarity. This is from Exodus 2. And it says, During those many days the king of Egypt died and the people of Israel groaned because of their slavery and cried out for help. Their cry for rescue from slavery came up to God, and God heard their groaning, and God remembered his covenant with Abraham, with Isaac, and with Jacob. God saw the people of Israel, and God knew. And so, in a way that's very similar to this language of Exodus, Jesus saw the twelve rowing painfully on the sea. And Jesus knew. This is the first aspect of his glory. He saw them. Second, I want you to note that he came to them. That's another aspect of his glory that we see He came to them. Let's continue reading in verse 48. He saw that they were making headway painfully for the wind was against them. And about the fourth watch of the night, he came to them walking on the sea. He came to them walking on the sea. Uh, The next verse says it's the fourth watch of the night. It's very dark. Uh, Perhaps there was just a glimmer of of the approaching dawn. Maybe there was a limited vision, but Christ came to them. 
seeing them in distress on the lake, Christ comes. And friend, this is what Christ does for all who are his. He comes for all his sons and daughters. He comes to them in their distress. And even if it's their own sin that has put them in distress, hear that. Even if it's their own sin that's put them in that distress, Christ comes to them. When you and I are struggling with sin, it is then, in particular, that his heart goes out to us. It's an amazing truth. When we are struggling with sin, it's then in particular that his heart goes out to us. The very reason he came to earth was to free us from sin. And you think he would stand off to the side and, and merely spectate as we struggle with temptation. No, it's then especially that he is drawn and his compassion is aroused and longs to help us fight the temptation. Can I prove it? I sure can. The greatest proof of this is that Jesus took on our humanity and was born in Bethlehem. We don't see in the word that things were going well at that time. Well, things were looking up in the New Testament world, so Jesus took on humanity and came down to be among men. It does not say that, does it? What does it say in Isaiah? The people who walked in darkness have seen a great light. Those who dwelt in a land of deep darkness, on them light has shone. He didn't come because things had started looking up, things had started to improve. He came because we were in darkness. John's Gospel says the light shines in the darkness. And in the darkness of your circumstances, I assure you, friend, Christ longs to come and shine his light on your situation. He not only saw them, he came to them. There's a third way that he displays his glory. And the third way is that he revealed himself. Uh, Christ revealed himself as God to the twelve. Let me look at verse 48 once more. And he saw that they were making headway painfully, for the wind was against them. And about the fourth watch of the night, between 3 and 6 a.m., he came to them walking on the sea. In the Old Testament, walking on the sea was something only God could do. In the Old Testament, walking on the sea was something that only God did. Uh, describing God in chapter 9, Job says, who alone stretched out the heavens and trampled the waves of the sea. And Isaiah wrote, thus says the Lord who makes a way in the sea, a path in the mighty waters. 
And then just moments ago, we read this, Your way was through the sea, your path through the great waters, yet your footprints were unseen. Only God can walk on the seas. And this is a revelation to them of who He is. But then notice that last phrase of verse 48 that we haven't read yet. He meant to pass by them. What a strange phrase. What a really odd thing. Did Jesus mean to just walk by them and leave them struggling against the wind? What, I mean, I don't want to be blasphemous here, but was it just, hey guys? I don't think so. I don't think that was the intent at all because of this word John uh, Mark uses to pass by. There are two places in the Old Testament where the same verb occurs in the Greek version of the Old Testament. One is when the Lord revealed himself to Moses. Listen to this, Exodus 33, Moses said, please show me your glory. And he said, I will make all my goodness pass before you and will proclaim before you my name, the Lord. And while my glory passes by, I will put you in the cleft of the rock, and I will cover you with my hand until I have passed by. And then the second place where this verb is used is in 1 Kings 19. The Lord appears to Elijah. Remember, he's depressed uh, near Mount Sinai. Go and stand on the mount before the Lord, and behold, the Lord passed by. Uh, a strong wind comes, an earthquake, a fire, finally a low whisper to Elijah. What I'm trying to show you is, is that this verb, pass by, is used in the Old Testament when God appears. And this is what Christ wants the 12 to see. Jesus meant to pass by them. He meant to reveal his glory to them. That's why it says he meant to pass by. He meant to show him, show them who he was. The only one who can walk on water, the God of Israel. Sadly, his men don't recognize him and miss the point. Look at verse 49 with me. But when they saw him walking on the sea, they thought it was a ghost and cried out. For they all saw him and were terrified. But immediately he spoke to them and said, Take heart, it is I. Do not be afraid. When they fail to recognize them, Jesus graciously speaks to further reveal who he is. And he begins by saying, take heart, which is another way of saying, have courage. And he concludes, do not be afraid, a phrase used throughout the Old Testament, spoken to God's people time after time. But it's the middle phrase that says the most. Jesus says, it is I, which sounds simple enough. The words are ego me," which is literally, I am. The same way the Lord revealed himself to Moses at the burning bush. God said to Moses, I am who I am. And he said, say this to the people of Israel, I am has sent me to you. He is 
now clearly and openly identifying himself to the twelve as the great I am. What an encouragement that would have been to the twelve to know that Jesus was the great I am and that he was there with them in the windstorm. It would have brought them great assurance. You'd think so, wouldn't it? Wouldn't you? You'd think so. But look at verse 51. And he got into the boat with them, and the wind ceased. Still another miracle. And they were utterly astounded. Flabbergasted. Dumbfounded. Uh, we would say, blown away. One Greek lexicon defines that word as the feeling of astonishment mingled with fear caused by events which are miraculous, extraordinary, or difficult to understand. So far, so good. But in verse 52, Mark goes on to say, For they did not understand about the loaves, but their hearts were hardened. That is not good. The twelve were astonished, yes, but astonished just like anyone else would be who saw a man walk across the lake and get into their boat. They were gobsmacked, as the British would say, but they didn't understand. That's the word Mark uses. They didn't understand what it meant that Jesus was revealing himself as the great I am. And this, Mark says in his editorial comment there in verse 52, is something they should have learned earlier that day from the feeding of the 5,000. It should have been obvious to them that Jesus, in feeding that crowd, was the shepherd of Israel. Uh, a miracle of that magnitude should have shown them that the very Son of God was standing in their midst. But failing to understand. Oh, that's a, that's a condemning phrase. The twelve were actually acting like those outside the kingdom of God. Their reaction here displays a glaring lack of spiritual per, uh, perception. And the reason for this is because their hearts were hard and stony. We're not looking for Jesus to reveal himself like this in our lives, in our windstorm. We don't expect him to show himself to us as he did with the twelve. Yet I tell you, he does see us. He does come to us. He does reveal himself through his word and through our circumstances. Look, I know making headway is painful and difficult. I know how hard it is to make headway when you have a gale in your face. 
but don't harden yourself to the truth that Christ sees you in your dark night. He does come. He does see. He does draw near to you in your suffering, and he does reveal himself speaking the very same words, take heart, child. The I am is with you. Do not be afraid. This is why he puts us in the boat and sends us out. This is why our progress is painful, so that you and I will see the glory of Christ. So that we will be stretched and watch Christ reveal himself in all his majesty. He saw them. He came to them. He revealed himself. But in contrast to the 12 who are acting really thick, uh, comes uh, the third stage. And it's quite a contrast. Uh, we see the faith of Christ's followers. And by followers, I mean other followers. We find here those who recognize Jesus, and those who put their trust in him and, and are healed as a result. I want to point out two things here. I want you to see um, the response of this group, uh, how they respond to Jesus. Notice verse 53, when they had crossed over, they came to land at Gennesaret and moored to the shore. Uh, it, it seems that they never made it to Bethsaida. Uh, their boat was blown so far off course that instead they actually go backwards uh, they were started out around here, and they headed here, and they wind up over here. Wow, uh, that's quite the wind, isn't it? Uh, John tells us in his account, and one of the others does, that it says immediately they were at their destination, the shore. Uh, uh, but verse 54 goes on to say, uh, and when they got out of the boat, the people immediately recognized him. Recognize means to clearly and distinctly discern that something or someone is true and valid. It means to know something completely, to know something through and through. In other words, those at Gennesaret knew exactly who he was. They recognized Jesus as opposed to his own men who failed to see who he was. And recognizing him for, for who he was, we see a further response in verse 55, and ran about the whole region and began to bring the sick people on their beds to wherever they heard he was. This response of his followers in Gennesaret uh, is because they recognize him. They see him as he is. And notice the result that follows from this. All right, Spencer, I am stuck now. There you go. Uh, look what happens. Verse 56 tells us, And wherever he came, in villages, cities, or countryside, they laid the sick in the marketplaces, 
and implored him that they might touch even the fringe of his garment. And as many as touched it were made well. That fringe that Mark refers to uh, is a reference to the tassels that Jewish men were required to sew on the corners of their clothing. Um, those are described in Numbers chapter 15. And they were meant to remind the men to follow the Lord and his commandments and not to follow their own hearts. And this mention of the tassels by Mark uh, was probably meant to remind us of a previous miracle that involved Jesus' clothing. This is probably inserted as a, as a jar to your memory. Wasn't someone else touched by or healed by touching his clothing? And you're right, it was the woman with the issue of blood who came up behind him in the crowd and touched his garment and was healed. Uh, that mention is, is probably what Mark is thinking and wants us to think about. Um, and look at the result uh, here in the last phrase. As many as touched it were made well. Was it the touching of his clothing that made them well? I mean, did his clothes contain divine power? Well, Christ makes it clear in that previous miracle that touching his clothes didn't heal the woman. It was her faith that made her well. He said, daughter, your faith has made you well. Go in peace and be healed of your disease. And the same would have been true for those in Gennesaret. It wasn't touching the fringe of his clothing that healed them. It was their faith in him and who he was that made them well. They recognized him for who he was, respond in faith, and their faith made them well. I think there's a lesson here for you and me as well. That when you find yourself in a storm of trouble and the wind is against you, oh, friend, be quick to recognize who Jesus is. Who he really is. The great I am, eager to help you. Oh, I pray that you would stop and just let that sink in. Not at lunch. It's too noisy to think that at lunch. But when you can get quiet and stop and think about the great I am is ready to help you. The great I am who works so powerfully in the Old Testament is ready to help you in your storm. I'm sorry, am I, am I saying something trite or boring? That's awesome. Should be mind-blowing. We too should be gobsmacked by that. What? The I am? You mean the one at the burning bush? Helping me? Walking on water? Helping me? Yes. 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 Let that sink in. Be quick to recognize Jesus for who he is. When you find yourself in a storm of temptation and all is dark about you, be quick to recognize Jesus as the almighty son of God, 
able to deliver you through that temptation and back into the daylight. The one who calmed the sea by stepping into the boat is there to help you both in your trouble and in your temptation. So why does God allow us to be blown off course like these men were? Why does he push us into the boat and send us out on a stormy sea? Why does he allow our progress to be painful? He sends us out on the stormy sea so that we can see the glory of Christ. And we've seen three aspects of his glory in our passage. He sees us. He comes to us. And he reveals himself to us. Let's pray as we conclude. I pray, Savior, that this would become a reality in our lives and not just an interesting Bible story. This is a true event. It actually took place. And that in the same way, uh, not showing up physically so we can see you, but in a similar way, uh, you make yourself known to us when we're on a stormy sea. And I pray you'd make that real for your flock sitting in front of me right now. That those in the storm and in the dark would know that you can see them right now. Right now. You see and you know. And that you are ready to come. You want to come. You long in your compassion to come near us. And that you want to show your greatness to us in that storm. By removing us from the storm, by carrying us through the storm, I don't know. But oh, Christ Jesus, we long to see your glory. We long to see your greatness unleashed in our stormy, our stormy sea, in our darkness. Jesus, reveal yourself that way to your flock, I pray in your name. Amen.